The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. That I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. Let's pray. Gracious, infinitely sweet Lord, I come to talk to you now, and it is my prayer for myself and for all here in this room that you would deal bountifully with us and open up your word to us. You would show us what you say. You would teach us. We need this, Lord, because we are sojourners on the earth. There will be a time when we will dwell with you in a permanent home. The earth remade, renewed, glorious, but that's not yet. Right now we're sojourners here. And we need your guidance and your instruction. So I pray, Lord... Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Your commandments, your instruction, your teaching, your word. Show us. Or that's my hope and my prayer this morning. We're going to open your word and we're going to hear about your word. I pray you would illumine us. Give us grace to see And let Christ be honored, we pray. Amen. Seeing is believing. The proof is in the pudding. Action speaks louder than words. The state of Missouri is known as the show-me state. These phrases and lots of others are all trying to communicate something. Talk is cheap. Oh, there's another one. What do you know? These phrases, these mottos, these slogans, these cliche statements are all trying to show us, trying to explain to us that we people are, are less inclined to believe words and, and statements and more inclined to believe visible, tangible actions. Results, things that we can see and get our hands on, so to speak. And that's not just true for people who live in Missouri or in America. It, it's true for people. And a lot of times, in a lot of cases, that's fine. That's good. Even wise. Given the fact that we live in a, a sinful and fallen world, full of people who are sinful and fallen, who, who lie or make mistakes or forget things or prove unable to back up what they said. Sometimes it's very wise and very necessary to say, you know, I'm going to, I'll see, when, I believe it when I see it. It's good. That's wise sometimes. But not always. Because sometimes the believing before you see it, or believing when you cannot see it with your own eyes, sometimes that sort of believing is the whole issue. It's the whole thing that you're talking about. It's required. And taking someone's word on it is the whole point. But not just 
someone's word, not just anyone's word, not my word on it, not Sally Sue's word on it, Jesus' word on it. That's what our passage is talking about this morning, the necessity of taking Jesus at his word. Instead of relying on miracles or other evidences, taking him at his word. When you can't see tangible evidence, that's the whole issue this morning. The trusting of Jesus' word is the trusting of him. And sometimes he, he refrains from acting in a visible way or in a really clear way, or sometimes he acts in, in a very subtle way or in a way that we can't quite check out yet so as to raise the issue of faith, trust in him and what he says. Sometimes he does that. He's really concerned to build faith in us, and that's the, that's the issue that surfaced this morning in our passage for us to consider here. Today's passage is, is a shoulder passage. Like on a road, the shoulder is, is a transition piece between the road and the grass. Well, this, this morning, our, our passage is transitioning us from the new and better section that we've been talking about for a number, number of weeks. It's going to close that out. And it's also going to open up for us, introduce us to, beginning in chapter 5, a long section of many chapters, from 5 to 12 actually, a section of rising conflict between Jesus and the people, especially the leadership. Up to this point, Jesus has been popular, but misunderstood. It's not going to take very long. Actually, by the end of next week's section, we're going to see that already people are calling for Jesus to be killed. Things change. And today, we're right in the middle. We're right on the cusp. Closing out the former, pointing us ahead, foreshadowing, pointing out what the, the issue, what the problem is with the people, and then in that, calling us to a right response to Jesus. That's what today's passage is doing. Let me read it for you. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version in John chapter 4, beginning with verse 43. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. The two days is referring to the previous passage where he stayed in Samaria for two days. Departed to Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them about the hour that he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. 
Last week we saw that Jesus was on his way from Judea in the south of Israel up to Galilee in the north. That's what had taken him through Samaria, which is right in the middle, and it led to the events of last week's section. He was remarkably well received there, and so he stopped for a couple days and stayed. Then in verse 43, he continues his journey. And in verses 44 and 45, we get a transition, transition in the note of, of foreshadowing, contrast. 44 recalls Jesus repeating what it was likely a proverbial statement, something that was well known. You know, a prophet has no honor amongst his home. Now, our English translations all say hometown. Actually, the word's a little broader than that. Homeland might be a good way of putting it. A prophet receives no honor amongst his homeland, amongst his people. We're about to see just how true that proverbial statement is. What happened in Samaria when he went there? He stopped there, that land of mixed races and religions, those outcasts, those people who were not Jesus' home people. They received him, properly embraced him in large numbers. It was remarkable. So that's what we expect then when he comes to Galilee. He comes to those who are actually his own, but they do not receive him. Well, the text says they welcomed him, and so at first we're thinking, hey, this is going pretty well. It's exactly what's supposed to happen, right? What's Jesus talking about in 44, receiving no honor? Well, keep reading and notice the irony there. They welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, because they'd been there also. Uh-huh, okay. We're back in chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. It's the very same people who were there are now here again, and they're doing the very same thing. Back then, they had received him because they'd seen all the signs. But we also saw in that text that Jesus did not receive them. He knew their faith was not genuine. It was shallow, based on this miraculous power. And it's the same people now doing the same things. They are welcoming him, but they're not really welcoming him. John's speaking with some irony here. Just like Jesus said, outcast Samaria receives him. Jewish Israel does not. In fact, as I said, what we'll see in, in chapters 5 through 12 is another major section opening up for us. A section of, of growing, heightening conflict between Jesus and those of his homeland. Jews in general, especially the leadership. Now, here and there, individuals will properly honor and receive him, but by and large, the masses are going to reject him. That's coming right up. So at the same time, it's 44 and 45 are right here introducing this story. They're pointing us ahead to coming chapters. They're foreshadowing coming events. And verse 46 is closing off past events. It's acting like a bookend here, closing off this new and better. The section that began back in Cana with the first sign, now he's right back in the very same place to perform his second sign. These aren't the only two miracles that Jesus performed. Obviously, the crowds had seen him do many things, but they're the only two that John reports for us, and he calls them signs. They're pointing ahead to something. They're showing us something. So if John says that here, there's something like a road sign with an arrow on it, something right here pointing at something. Notice this. We'll get to that later. For now, let's look at the events themselves. Imagine that you are a royal official in the court of King Herod, who controls all this land. That's who you are. Yesterday, you'd come to see Jesus. Now you're walking the 16 miles back to your home in Capernaum, and all kinds of things are running through your mind. 
your child, your son, your little boy. How is he? I wonder, how is he? Boy, I wish I could see him right now. There's a wrestling going on inside of you. You'd heard that this Jesus had somehow or another come from God with power. Other pilgrims had told, had told you they'd been to the feast in Jerusalem. They'd seen some remarkable things, some really interesting stuff. And now this Jesus is back here in Galilee, less than 20 miles away in Cana. You know, ordinarily, that might not really have mattered to you very much, but right now it, it does. It really matters to you because of what's going on with your boy. You don't know how this happened, but when the slave ran and got you and brought you home and you saw him there, he was in bad shape. He had the fever and was dying. He was wasting away before your eyes. As a person of status, you have access to resources. Money and power can buy health sometimes, but not in this case. Nobody could do anything. He was dying. And then you heard about this Jesus in Cana. If this miracle worker can just come here and lay his hands on him, maybe he can heal him. You know, the prophets, sometimes in the past, the prophets were known to heal people. I'm going to go get him and bring him back here. Maybe this Jesus can spare his life. And so you went and you pleaded with him, but he wouldn't come. How distressing that was. For him to hear you make your case and him to say, No. You pleaded. He's at the point of death. He might even be dead now. Come quickly and heal him. And he said, no. First responded in some forlorn comment about we Galileans in general. I was talking to him and he was speaking to me, but he was speaking over my head to everybody. You all, he said, unless you all see signs and wonders, you just won't believe. At first, I didn't get that. Believe? Believe what? Believe who? What are you talking about? Just come and heal my son. And then it kind of occurred to me that maybe that attitude right there is what he's talking about. I don't really know who he is. I don't understand what he's talking about. And frankly, I don't really care. I just want him to come do something for me. Heal my boy. It's wanting to fix my problem. But he seems much more concerned with belief and with faith. And he talks as if that's the real issue. It's hard to get. But I know I do care about my son, so won't you please come and, and hurry? And he says, no. You go. And then he smiles and says, your boy will live. He says he won't come to heal him, that he doesn't need to come to heal him. And if, if that's not true, and I leave here without him, and I go home, and I find him still sick, and then I have to come back the next day and get him, and then persuade him the next day after that to come, the boy's not going to live three more days. But if I don't believe him, what he just said to me now, if I refuse to embrace him, that's not going to sit well with Jesus. He clearly thinks that my belief in him is the issue. What will come of my unbelief? I don't know. Stand there 
and you look at Jesus and you process what he said to you and what he said to everybody. And then something inside of you believes. I believe him. There aren't any flashes or any voices from heaven. Just you, face to face with Jesus and with his command to you to go home and his promise to you that the boy will live. And you take him at his word. You believe. And you walk away. It's too late that day to start home. So you stay in town the rest of the afternoon kind of mulling these things over. I'd come to Jesus looking for life for my son. He raises this issue of belief. And he gives me a promise. And I believe it and that seems to be the right thing. I think he's trustworthy. And you go back to your hotel and you ask the front desk for a wake-up call the next morning and you get a good night's sleep. Up early, you've been on the road for several hours now when you see your servants approaching you. What news do they carry? How is my son? I wonder. I, I think he's well. I hope. God have mercy. I hope he's well. And the look on their faces tells the whole story in a second. He lives. He lives. The fever is broken. Just like Jesus said. When, when did the fever go? Yesterday, about one o'clock. Did you say one o'clock? Just when Jesus said he was well. You feel, as you process all this, you're filled with amazement and wonder. Just like he said, he took care of the situation. He didn't have to come. He could do it from afar. But he did it in a way that caused me to wrestle with belief because I couldn't see it. You get home, and sure enough, your boy's well. And as you tell the story to your whole household, they all together now see the trustworthiness of the word of Jesus confirmed by the living boy right in front of you. And everybody believes. Savior of the world indeed. That's the second sign of Jesus. Both performed in Galilee and Cana even both revealing something about Jesus, both raising up and pointing out the issue of faith as the right response to him. Two things, two summary points I'm going to discuss this morning. Together they make the main point. Jesus can indeed give life. It's being pointed out about Jesus. Jesus can indeed give life. So, here's your response, Take him at his word and live. So two halves of the main statement. Jesus can indeed give life, so take him at his word and live. We'll start with Jesus. This sign is obviously pointing out something to us. The official saw something. His household saw something. We're supposed to see something. Jesus can indeed give life. You may recall that we talked about sign first back in chapter 2 at the first sign. The nature of a sign, it's a little bit different than a miracle. A sign is pointing something out. A miracle is is simply something that surpasses the laws of nature. But a sign is perhaps a miracle that's trying to illustrate or, or to help us to see something. So what's it pointing out in this case? Well, obviously about Jesus, that he can give life. 
But I want to say that statement in two different ways to, to show two different emphases here. Jesus can indeed give life, and Jesus can indeed give life. Those two different emphases. Jesus, the Savior of the world, the center of God's salvation redemption plan. He's front and center throughout this whole book because he is front and center in God's book. John holds him up for us like a treasure, a a jewel, turning him repeatedly, trying to show us just some different glorious aspect of his nature to draw us to him, to draw our hearts out and to cause us to wonder at him. This official blindly says, I have a need, and he goes to Jesus. We know much more than him. And we're supposed to think, whatever's going on in my life, go to Jesus. Jesus can give. Jesus is the center of everything. Jesus, the the, the center of the world, the center of my life. Jesus can give eternal life. Jesus can give physical life. Jesus can give life. It's the second emphasis. And obviously there's more here in, in this section about Jesus giving life. Our English translations actually obscure something because they're trying to translate in a way that makes sense in English. They kind of have to go this way. But in the original language, we have the same, almost the same phrase repeated three times. Either the son or, or the child lives in 50 and 51 and 53. Three times. That's what Jesus did. John is emphasizing that by his repetition Jesus made it so that the boy lives. He receives life from Jesus. A threefold repetition there should get our attention. Obviously, in this text, the life-giving ability is first and foremost seen in the physical realm. He gives physical life to this sick boy. It is raw power at its most amazing. Jesus doesn't even know this guy. He doesn't know the boy. He's never been to their house. doesn't know where they live, humanly speaking. Nothing. It comes to him out of the crowd. And the man assumes that Jesus is going to have to come to his house to deal with it. That's why he's so insistent. Come with me. Come with me. He thinks he's going to have to come and see the boy and lay his hands on him, say a prayer over him or recite a blessing or some formula or something. He's going to have to do that, right? But none of that is necessary. Jesus doesn't have to do any of those things. He doesn't have to go anywhere or say anything. Notice in the text, he doesn't even pray. He doesn't even comment on the illness or any demonic activity. Nothing. He just says the result. At the mere thought, it changes. And he pronounces the verdict. We are far too familiar with the miracles of Jesus, to really be impressed by this. We expect this sort of thing. He does it all the time, doesn't he? But when this guy came to put all these pieces together, he was amazed at it. Here's a person I think is just a man who 16 miles away just heals by thought. This is no mere rabbi, a teacher. He's not just another man or simple miracle worker. He's not a man who's been exalted to some higher status amongst the creation. He is the Lord over the creation, the clear master of all things made, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority. 
All things were made by Jesus and for Jesus and are sustained by Him and changed by Him and corrected by Him and healed by Him at this thought. Raw power over His creation. We should see that kind of power and it should cause us to marvel. To bow down before it. And when we see that that power can be wielded on our behalf, it should cause us to worship Him. It can be wielded on our behalf. Is it always? No, of course not. He's no genie in a bottle. We don't rub Him and make Him pop out and do our will. He is the sovereign God, not us. Sometimes He may physically give life and sometimes He may not. He's God. For larger reasons, sometimes he actually ordains suffering and pain for his people. We talked about this when we looked at the book of Habakkuk where we explicitly see that. God says so. And sometimes for larger reasons, he does not draw away that pain and suffering. Let's it remain. He's really concerned about faith. And sometimes those situations in our lives work to build faith and belief in us. So he leaves them sometimes. But seeing that he could take it away, that he could fix it, that he could wield this power on his behalf, but doesn't, that should not cause us to despise him or reject him, be upset with him. We should remember his love for us, proven at the cross. Remember his wisdom, that he knows far more than we do. We should draw near to Him and embrace Him and His plan for us, which is good always. There are bigger things that God is after in our lives. There is more life that He intends to give to us. Clearly, obviously the physical life that He gives is most obvious in this passage, but as I said, the repetition of that word life, live, should be a flag for us. It should grab our attention. Because it connects us to one of John's common themes. John is constantly speaking at two different levels. In every, everywhere, every passage he's speaking at two different levels. The physical and the spiritual. He's doing the same thing here. We've got to get beyond the physical to see what he's saying at the spiritual level. He's hitting on live, live, live. To make us think about life. Beyond the physical. From the very beginning of this book... John has been concerned to hold up for us living people the need to come to life. Holds that up before us constantly. Chapter 1. Christ is life. Jesus is life. And he gives the right to be born of God. To come to life. Chapter 3. You must be born again from above. Verse 15, if you believe in Him, you receive eternal life. Verse 16, if you believe in Him, you don't perish, but you have eternal life. Verse 36, whoever believes has eternal life, but whoever does not obey shall not see life. He's talking to living people about life. About coming to living water. Having a spring inside of you that wells up to eternal life. We've seen all of that already. If we look ahead into chapter 5. Verse 21, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He wills. 
Verses 24 and 25 then, the same chapter. If you believe you have eternal life and you've passed from death to life, the one who hears the word of God, who hears God's voice speaking, who hears that, will live. Skip ahead to chapter 11, where Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead, physically speaking, and he says to Lazarus' sister Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, yet he will live. John is intent on convincing us Jesus is life. You can't go anywhere in this book and get away from the word life. It's everywhere. Jesus is life and Jesus gives life. And we need it. Even though we're already walking around and breathing alive, we need life. It comes from his hand. Eternal life comes from his hand. Remember what eternal life is. Eternal life is John's way of talking about the reign of the kingdom of God, first within here, and then eventually everywhere. His reign, God's sovereign work and control of us. And that might sound oppressive at first, but only if you don't know God and you don't really know yourself. This happy, glorious, merciful, gracious Trinity, the only God who is, this God will reign over us in glory. But that has so often been misrepresented and misinterpreted by our fallen hearts that are in rebellion against Him, by by 10,000 different world religions and by the chief deceiver of them all, Satan and his demons. You see, the great lie told to us by Satan and by our own fallen hearts, the great lie is that there is something that is good and delightful and enjoyable to us, and that God is against it. And no sooner will God get control over us and come to reign in our lives, and he's going to chase away everything good and enjoyable, stamp it out, and what will follow is lifeless dutiful submission, pain and drudgery. That's a lie. Told us by Satan and by ourselves, countless religions, by the world in general. It's far from the truth. There is something good and delightful and beautiful and enjoyable to us, but God is not against it. He is radically for it because that good and delightful and enjoyable thing for us is God himself. The reign of God in our lives, eternal life in us, His reign, His control over us, for those who know Him by faith, will be a beautiful thing. Forever and ever and ever, delight, we are made for Him. And we will be joined to Him in such beautiful union. It will be a remarkable thing, hard for us to imagine. We'll see Him and we'll experience Him for all of eternity. But it doesn't have to wait for eternity to begin. It doesn't have to wait for us to die to start that eternal life. It begins now. We can have eternal life right now. John 10.10, Jesus says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Have it in fullness. He can indeed give life a bountiful, blessed, abundant life right now. 
It's possible. It comes from the hand of Jesus. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Psalm 2. It's talking about how blessed life is when we join ourselves to and live under the shadow of God the Son, Jesus. What joy this abundant, blessed life will be. It's not a life of abundance as in abundant stuff. This is not Jesus' promise to give us each a flat screen TV, a red Hummer, and membership in the local country club. It's Jesus' promise to actually give you something valuable. Life with Him. A heart joined to Him at rest in here amidst chaos out there. Peace, happiness, contentment, life. What a good thing. We're going to see several examples of this kind of life tonight. We gather here at 7 o'clock for the International, or 6.30, the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. We're going to see some stories of people, brothers and sisters, hard-pressed around the world, but living life. Having nothing, but having everything. Stories like, like this one, I read recently of an abbreviated version of an Iranian doctor's testimony. People are coming to Christ in Iran. This man's come to Christ, and in the voice of the Martyrs magazine, he's telling his story, telling how his persecutions and, and his interrogations and his, ostrac- his ostracism in his community, telling about all those things, and he concludes the story by saying, we must move every two or three years. Moves because... The, A, the community forces him out, but also the authorities force him to keep moving so that he doesn't build relationships because when he does, he keeps ministering to them and people are coming to Christ. So they keep moving him around to make him a stranger. We're forced to move every two or three years. We've moved six times so far. This is the seventh place we have moved to in 13 years. Yet this is not important. We don't want any home here because we know where our home is. We are always ready to go to our main home with Jesus. I am not afraid of death because I know where I am going. This is in Iran where that is real. Now listen to the book of John. John 3.16 tells our family, When you believe and seek Jesus, you have abundant life. You have everlasting life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Three passages from the book of John. Or how this guy concludes his testimony. He is getting abundant life from Jesus while his life is under constant threat from the authorities. I hope you come tonight to pray for him and to learn from him and others. Jesus gives abundant life. He can give physical life, yes, He gives eternal life, more importantly. And that begins now. Jesus can indeed give life. So how do you get in on that? That's the response part. The second point. The correct response to Jesus. In this book and in life, everybody responds to Jesus in some way or another. You hear something about him and you react to him. What's the correct way to react to him? Take him at his word. 
take him at his word. Whatever he says, whatever he commands, whatever he promises, that's the response highlighted in this, in this uh, section. And the writer John is teaching this in a, a subtle and somewhat sophisticated way. He doesn't come right out and say, believe the word of Jesus in a, in a command form. It's not actually written anywhere like that. But he's getting it to us nonetheless. And he gets it by way of narrating two different responses to Jesus and then the results of those two different responses. He started on this back in chapters 2 and 3 with Nicodemus and the crowds. He saw back there that the crowds had, had seen the, the miracles, the power of Jesus. Nicodemus had seen some of that as well, and he comes to Jesus saying that, I know some things about you. But what's the response to that? Twice in chapter 3 it says, the people do not accept the testimony of Jesus. And therefore, Jesus does not accept them. He holds himself away at a distance from them because they're accepting him, but not correctly. So you have this one crowd, Jewish and religious, that has seen many miracles and has started to become a following for him. They, they like him so far. And this group resurfaces in our text today in Galilee. It's the very same people. And they welcome him for the very same reason. There's folks that saw the signs. They welcome him. But we have this foreshadowing about how it's not actually genuine. There's one camp that welcomes him based on a visible display, but not, specifically not, on his testimony. The other response is seen in the Samaritans, who embrace the word of the word. Right up above, in verses 39 to 42. Look at that. If you glance up and look at verse 41. Many more believed because of his word. Pretty clear why they believed. Because of his word. The only thing that's remotely miraculous in that whole story is how Jesus tells the Samaritan woman some things about her life. And while that did draw them out of town to start with, they're also equally clear about how they value that in their relation to Jesus. They say to her, verse 42, It's not because of what you said, but we have heard for ourselves. They've sat and listened to Jesus teach, and they've heard for themselves and believed. This is the Savior of the world. And then they ask him to remain with them, so he remains with them. John just loads stuff in. This is beautiful. We talked about this remaining idea back in chapter 1, about how genuine disciples are those who come to, follow, and remain with Jesus. Well, here he drops this word in a couple times again. Who does Jesus remain with? Those who accept his word. He remains there for two days. They get the Savior of the world to stay with them. So there's the two groups. One group believes based on physical signs but not on testimony, and the other group based on the word in the absence of physical signs. And then we have the official in our passage who represents them both at once. Two different times. He's one or the other. He comes first because he heard about the signs. That's what he's after. He wants miraculous power. He doesn't really care about Jesus. He cares about his son, and he wants a miracle to heal his son. That's his main focus. But what do we have in the middle of the passage? Jesus, he chastises that belief that's based on miracles and wonders. And then the text says, pointedly, the man believed the word. Same thing as the Samaritans. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke and went on his way. 
Now, yes, later he did hear of the sign. He heard of the miracle later, and that confirmed, that served to support his belief. He believed all the more. His faith was strengthened by seeing the word of Jesus affirmed. But his faith was not based on the sign. It existed before the sign. Signs themselves aren't a problem. They're not bad. The problem is when you base the faith on the sign, and he does not do that. John is trying to say that belief in the word is joined to, it's connected to life. That's the point he makes. Belief that's based on signs and wonders, how is that received? Well, Jesus criticizes it, and then what we're going to see is those who believe based on signs and wonders are slowly going to turn away. It begins the very next chapter. They're all going to fall away if their faith is based on the signs. They're going to be calling for Jesus' death pretty soon. Sign tells us that Jesus can indeed give life. Our response, take him at his word. Believe him. Accept his testimony. Even if you cannot yet see the physical evidences. Especially if you cannot see the physical evidences. Even if he hasn't acted yet in some supernatural way to carry out what you think you want or what you think you need. Even if he hasn't done that yet, take him at his word. He is trustworthy. He is the Savior. Genuine trust, genuine faith, by definition, is a confidence in something not seen. Hebrews 11 tells us that. Webster's Dictionary would tell us that. I mean, think about this. It does not require any faith for me to believe that I have two hands. No faith here. I can look at them. But what does require faith is what happens if I lose my hands physically or I lose, I, I use, I lose the use of them. That requires faith amidst that kind of tragedy, to believe that despite this loss, I can still, moment by moment, throughout my day, experience a joyful and blessed life. Happiness and contentment. The life of peace and joy with Jesus. Never lacking. Always abundant. That requires faith, and that's the problem. When we lose our hands, or our health, or our jobs or our public prestige, when our spouses insult us, or our parents never listen to us, or our kids don't mind us, when the car mechanic tells us that it will be $1,500, when the neighbor says that you're a fool for believing this thing about Jesus, or the society says that you're a prude for not showing off your body, etc., 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 when we see those things, when those things happen to us, those things are, are physically front and center. They're right here. Really easy to look at. Hard to deny. Hard to get around and look at something else. Makes faith, makes belief in an unseen yet unfulfilled promise or word or command from Jesus. It makes that kind of faith hard. And we all live in the show me state by nature. We all are, we're people, we're all seeing as believing type people by nature. What we can clearly see with our eyes dominates us. Has the upper hand from the start, from scratch. Look at yourself, what do you see? 
What do you look at habitually? Not, not right at this moment, but habitually through your life. Stop and kind of check out for a moment and ask yourself, what dominates my vision? What do I usually look at? And you might help yourself by observing your emotions. You might do pretty well at controlling your actions on the outside, but look at your emotions and ask yourself, where do I experience despair or anxiety, worry, fear and anger? Where do I experience those emotions? Where am I prone to give up or walk away? Because those emotions are connected to something that you're believing. Are you believing something incorrect? Are you believing something that the world is saying to you and not believing something that Christ is saying to you? Those, those emotions may lead to actions, but you may be able to control the actions. Look at the emotions. For me, ironically, I struggle with this in regards to ministry in the church. It's kind of odd. But whenever someone criticizes the way that I do something, or votes with their feet and leaves the fellowship, or whenever the giving is down, or our ministries seem to be in confusion and sagging, or when I, I hear some, some criticism and backbiting amongst the body, or when I hear a glowing report about the church across town that's growing by leaps and bounds, countless things, I hear those things, and I look at them, and life runs out of me. Not, not my salvation, not my eternal life in a salvation sense, but the life that's broken in now, the abundant life meant to be lived right now, it leaks out of me and anxiety and fear and pressure comes in because I struggle to believe the word of Jesus, Matthew 16, I will build my church. Not you, Steve. I will build my church. I look around, I say, I don't know. He didn't promise me to build this church, to build his church. Our church may fall apart and go away, but he will build his church, and that's what should be most important to me. But uh, I struggle with that. And I notice that by looking at my emotions. I don't tell you that I'm anxious or, well, I just did, but <laughs> I, I don't wear it out here all the time, but I look inside and I notice that inside of me. Look inside of you, track your emotions, and ask yourself, what do you believe? This is the whole issue. Do you believe what you see or do you believe the word of Christ? A thousand different circumstances in your life this applies to. I don't know what else to put my finger on. Do you, you follow what I'm saying? Life is connected to believing the word of Christ and more broadly all the word of God. We have to believe it. When there's a struggle, we, we have to say, God, help me. This is the word. This is my life. Help me to place it in front of and look through the word at my life. We have to struggle with that and pray for grace. We have to believe that not just when he does something impressive. In fact, he usually won't do something impressive, at least not right now. Maybe later he will. But he wants to surface in us. The main issue he's after is, do we believe him? Do we trust him? And he'll hold off the evidence to make that question clear. 
That's what this official's facing. This official stands right there and he can't see his son. He can't pick up his cell phone and call home. Is he better? He has to go to bed and the next day start walking. Do you believe me? Do you believe my word? Says Jesus. That's what he's after. Brothers and sisters, the blessed life can be experienced each day by trusting Jesus' commands and his promises. Period. Period. It's true if you're a Christian or not. Take Jesus at his word. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man or woman. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. His instruction. His guidance. His teaching. His word. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on this law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water, living water. A tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. A life of brown, dead landscape where the stream is, is green life. Blessed is that man or woman. Jesus can indeed give life right now and will give life like it's hard to imagine then. So take him at his word and live. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.